So as you find a way to sit that's comfortable and at ease, let yourself listen, not so much to remember what is said, but more to sense inside if you hear something that resonates with what you know to be true in your own heart. And that's really what matters and what you can carry from this evening. This past few days has been um, the holidays of Passover and Easter, which of course are both rooted in much more ancient spring festivals of renewal, whether it's the the symbolism of the Easter egg or all of those things that come really from the the spring festivals. Um, And so it really is a time both of renewal and the mystery of life coming back after winter in many places. Um, And so I want to tell a story tonight um, and talk some about that mystery because here we are going about our daily affairs as we do in this society, driving and uh, searching on the internet and, um, (laughs) you know, between driving and Google, you're already, that's about half your day, right? (laughs) You know, and hunting and gathering, as Wes Nisker likes to say, which is basically shopping in its modern form, (laughs) various other things like that. And we, we live in a way that um, the speed and the complexity um, and the urban environment for many of us that divorces often us in some way from the memory of mystery that we live in and that we're born into. Um, and that we're surrounded by and that we are. So, um, One of my favorite contemporary accounts, and this is all as a preface to the story that you'll hear, um, of both mystery and trust, um, is the the accounts of Nainoa Thompson. Nainoa Thompson has become the most beloved figure in Polynesian society in the last, I don't know, 30 or 40 years. Um, He's the first younger generation of a Polynesian navigator. He's a Hawaiian. And the Polynesian Voyaging Society began in the 1970s by constructing this huge double-held canoe um, that was a model of what they believed was sailed all across the South Pacific and brought people from island to island and settling that vast area. Um, And uh, of course, you know, European culture knew about it in a certain way because when Captain James Cook, who was arguably the finest navigator in the British Royal Navy, landed in Tahiti in the 1700s. He met uh, uh, one of the great navigators there, Tilapia, I think his name was, who drew on the sand a map of the South Pacific that was 4,000 kilometers across and placed 120 stones on it, indicating all these islands which he knew in his heart, you know. And so Nainoa, wanting to learn how to navigate the canoe, went to the far uh, uh, South Pacific and found one of the three or four remaining living navigators who had these skills, who'd grown up in this little atoll of a, you know, half a square mile, 
but um, Mao was his name, um, had been taught in this tradition to read the waves, the five levels of waves, to read the what floats on the ocean, to, to look at the kinds of clouds, to see the halo around the moon, to look at the direction of the birds, um, his instructor in... Um, it required for several days that he tie his testicles to the bottom of the boat um, in order to feel through every cell of his body the kinds of waves, they're the deep waves that bounce off the volcano, volcanic bottoms of other islands, to begin to feel in his being the, the waves of, um, of the ocean in ways that normally we don't feel. <laughs> Some of you will never feel, but that's another story. But anyway, so Nainoa went to study with Mao um, and wonder, undertook this amazing training. And then this is a, a story from the great writer and adventurer Wade Davis. He says, I, um, I went out on the deck of the Hokulea and we left Kauai in a fierce rainstorm, headed out in this double-hulled canoe with 12 people and 4,000 pounds of stores to go all the way to Tahiti in the middle of a storm in the dark of the night. And the navigator sits in the back. Now Nainoa has trained Kayulani, a young woman who's the next generation of navigators, sits in the back like a monk or a nun, um, almost in silence for the entire voyage, and, and looks at the stars and feels the water and remembers the entire voyage, they don't sleep for those days. They just doze, but they don't sleep. And when Nainoa first did the longest voyage, 10,000 kilometers to Easter Island, um, across this vast Pacific to these little islands, he fell asleep toward the end and he was lost. And he didn't want to tell anybody. <laughs> so it's just, and here we are 10,000 kilometers in the middle of the Pacific and I'm supposed to remember every day and where we're going. And then he remembered that Mao had told him that if he should ever be lost, that he could pull the islands to which he was journeying out of the ocean with his imagination. That he could see the islands that were his goal because he carried them inside himself. And so after he freaked out, he sat there, and it was dark, and he imagined Easter Island, and he pictured the islands, and as he did, and sat there picturing the islands, the cloud broke, and there was this ray of moonlight in one direction, and he followed it, and the next day, Easter Island appeared. And I tell the story partly because it's very beautiful, and I'm moved by the wisdom of the traditional voyagers, and partly because we are all on a mysterious journey from birth. I don't know how you got into that strange body that you have. Do you? I mean, come on. You don't know. But here you are, you know, incarnation. It's a weird thing, human. Um, we're in this amazing journey, and yes, we go through our daily rounds, but we're also part of something so much bigger of the turning of the stars and the seasons. And so the Dharma, which is the Sanskrit word for, it means truth, like the Tao, the way things are, or the teachings, um, really is um, 
the, the words that speak to this mystery or that speak to something deeper than the ordinary way we see the world. Um, and one of the beautiful stories, Dharma stories, if you will, this is an ancient one, some thousands of years old from the Upanishads, um, is a kind of adventure story, if you will, and it's an initiation story um, that seems fitting for this Passover, Easter, springtime. The oldest, most widespread stories in the world are adventure stories about human heroes who venture into myth countries at the risk of their lives to bring back tales of the world beyond the known. It could be argued that the narrative art itself arose from the need to tell an adventure, that a person risking their life in perilous encounters constitutes the original definition of what is worth talking about. But, goes on Wilhammer Stephenson, having an adventure shows that someone is incompetent, that something has gone wrong. An adventure is interesting enough in retrospect, especially to the person who didn't have it. At the time it happens, it usually constitutes an exceedingly disagreeable experience. So we have both sides of this. So, a long time ago, when you were much younger than you are now, there was born in ancient India a young man named Nachiketa um, to a wealthy Brahmin family. And Nachiketa, whose father was a businessman, was somebody who was interested in the mystery, in the truth of things, and skeptical about the world that he saw around him. Um, and sometimes our initiation begins through our own skepticism. Things don't seem right. You, you're a teenager or you're a young adult and you look around and you say, this world is messed up. I have to find some other way to live in this world because what the adults are doing doesn't seem to make any sense to me. You know that moment? You remember it? Before you became an adult, right? Um, or sometimes the initiation begins with, in Greek, what's called a katabas, a blow. You get a cancer diagnosis or someone you love gets very sick or the, there's a loss or a death or, or a divorce or something unexpected happens to you. And all of a sudden, who you thought you were and what you thought the world was um, shatters and opens. And you're faced with, well, what do I don't do now? Who am I now? What is this life? And all of us, at some time or another, will go through initiations. And if we go through them consciously, they awaken us, they liberate us, they free us. So this is Nachiketa's initiation story, and it's a kind of male initiation story, but as you listen as, as a woman, those of you, you know, who reflect on female initiations, there is the female initiation of the moon huts, and the female, and menses, there's the female initiation of childbirth, of the, the healing lineages um, of the, you know, feminine, um, wise women. There are all these forms of female initiation as well. But here's Nachiketa, and he's a young man, and his father, who's gotten quite old, becomes nervous about his eternal soul. And so he goes to the priests of the big temple in the community, 
and he says, I'm getting old and I'm kind of worried about, you know, what's going to happen after I die and so forth. And the priests tell him about this special ceremony where you can make a great deal of good karma or merit. And of course, basically, it, it requires you giving a lot to the temple. And so his father proudly makes this huge public ceremony where he gives his gold and his cattle and everything. People come to see it. Very proud of himself. And says, I give all that I value to the temple. You know. I remember my teacher Ajahn Chah, there was a very wealthy Thai businessman who came to see Ajahn Chah in the forest of Thailand. Um, he'd recently retired and sold this, you know, some enormous business and and he came and he said, I don't know what to do with the fortune that I've made, whether I should give it to a monastery like yours, or maybe I should build hospitals with it, or maybe I should, you know, build schools. And he kind of went on and he was just so full of what he could do and who he was. And he said, so I've come to you, great teacher, to ask your advice and sort of dangling out, would you like me to give it to your monastery? And Ajahn Chah looked back at him and he said, you know when you came down the road to the monastery, you crossed over that high bridge over the Yamun River? The man said, yes. He said, I think you should take it in a big barrel and just throw it off the bridge. <laughs> it was just a great moment, you know. Because <laughs> he saw that. So Nachiketa saw his father doing the same thing. And he saw, as we can, the hypocrisy of religion when it's used as a kind of inoculation against mystery. You understand? Rather than opening to what's true, it's used as a kind of defense in some way. And he saw the lies of the society around. This is from John Taylor Gatto, New York City Teacher of the Year, some years ago, who stood up in front of the school board and all the assembled parents and castigated them for the sole murder of one million black and Latino children. He took his award and he quit. And he said, think of the things that are killing us as a nation. Drugs, brainless competition, recreational sex, the pornography of violence, gambling, alcohol, and the worst pornography of all, lives devoted to buying things and accumulation of things as a religion of meaning. And this is what we're teaching our children, he said. So this was kind of the frame of mind Nachiketa was in, looking out. And his father said, I give all that I value to the temple. And Nachiketa says, you do? What about me? You know, kind of some blurted out, this is nonsense, right? Your son. And being as insulted publicly by his son in this great festival as he was, his father turned back to him when he said, you give all you value, what about me, your son? And he says, I give you, I give you to death, which means drop dead, basically. He was so angry, he said that to his son. And his son looked back at him and said, I accept. Because he was a young man looking for initiation. And young men, you know, they come and they say, anything dangerous to do around here? I mean, really, you have to understand, that's what initiation is. Young women, too, sometimes. Because um, you need to show that you're bigger than just the circumstance that you're born into. That you, you have to find your way to connect to the mystery. So he accepted this 
Um, and he accepted it because he saw um, the insanity of that culture at that time, the superficiality of it, the hypocrisy of it. But of course, it's not just that time. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, right? Remember that? Okay, but I'm going to go on. It's not as pretty. In 1493, the Pope declared the indigenous inhabitants of the New World not people. Therefore, it could be colonized. In 2007, at the United Nations, after years of struggle, even in the 90s, indigenous rights, the UN declared the rights of indigenous people. And all nations in the world signed but four. Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and guess who? USA. The rights of indigenous people. Declared by the Pope in 1493, they are not people. So it's not just Nachiketa's time. This is crazy, actually, isn't it? You know, it's some very deep, not just hypocrisy, but some profound um, ignorance and grasping and fear behind this. So Nachiketa saw this. Um, we also haven't signed the landmine treaty that my teacher Gosananda worked on for so many years, you know, and we're trying to make ourselves secure. We have like the airbag society, right? Everything's going to keep us safe, but it doesn't work that way. Because you can't hold on to things. Your life grows through your generosity. It grows through your capacity to let go and move on. It grows through your interdependence, your care for one another, through the sense that you're vulnerable. Because everybody's vulnerable, as Rilke says, ultimately it's upon our vulnerability that we depend. We're vulnerable to one another and therefore we're connected to one another. So Natiteta said, I accept. Um, I will take this journey. You said, I give you to death. I will do this. And so what he did is he went out into the woods and he sat down and he didn't move for three days or nights, waiting for death. Now, when you go into a monastery, and I ordained back in the days in the 1960s, um, in a very traditional culture in Laos and Thailand, where you would be taken on elephant back, except the family that took me to the monastery was very poor, so I was on a bicycle rickshaw, but I should have been on an elephant back. <laughs> you go as a prince. In, in these white clothes and gold, you know, jewelry, even for the day that they borrow. And then you leave all that aside at the monastery gates and you walk in with just a simple white loincloth um, and you go into the grove of the elders um, and they give you your, your begging bowl and your robes and you begin to live an entirely different life that's very sparse and very demanding and at the same time very inspiring. But in Japan, they don't even let you into the monastery. You can't go up elephant back or not until you do Tangario in the Zen monastery, which means you have to go sit outside the gates and prove that you're worthy to go to have an initiation, to learn something deep. You have to show that you're really up for it and ready, which means in the snow, you go out and you sit there for a day or two, and the monks, they kind of open the window and say, yep, we got another one out there. Let's see how long she lasts or he lasts, right? And after a few days, if you're still out there, they say, I think we've got a live one. You know, open the gates, let them in. Um, so you have to offer something of yourself for a genuine journey. Does this make sense to you? 
Um, yes, it can come as a blow, and then there you are, you're on it. But if you choose it, you really have to give yourself, as Nachiketa did. So he sat there for three days and nights and began to take the descent that's described as Inanna's descent in the feminine form, Erishkagel, if you go into the oldest writings of Babylon where she goes into the underworld. He took the descent to the underworld, and after three days and nights, he appeared in the land of death, and he said, I am looking for Lord Yama, the Lord of death. And there were, he wasn't there, who he encountered were only some of his assistants, pestilence, war, and famine. And they said, Lord Yama is out collecting rent, you will have to wait. So he waited, and he waited for a while. Lord Yama means, by the way, the keeper of the law, the law of the way things are, that things are born and that they die, that that is the keeper of the books of the law, many, many different ways. So, so he sat, and he waited. And actually, if you meditate, and you sit, we sat for 30, 35 minutes, but if you come on a retreat for a day, or a week, or a month, you sit like he did, and maybe it's not war, pestilence, and famine, but it is restlessness, fear, loneliness, longing, regret, guilt, um, unfinished business, tension you carry, all the stuff that you may have run away from in your life. You sit quietly and he comes, remember me, I'm here. All the unfinished business of the heart. So here's Nachiketa sitting with all this, and you really have to sit with what you're afraid of to grow. In fact, fear is the membrane between what you know and something new. When you get afraid, it's like one of those little lights on the dashboard blinking and saying, about to grow, about to grow, like it or not, about to grow, right? It's true. So there he was, sitting, and death arrived, Lord Yama, and the assistant said, you know, there's an unusual young man who's come here, because usually when people hear your name, they flee, hands in the air, and run the other way. He came seeking the Lord of Death brave young man, and uh, he's been here, and, and um, Lord Yama said, how long has he been here? He said, three days. He didn't run away, he came to see you. So Lord Yama went up to Nachiketa and paid his respects and said, I'm sorry to keep you waiting. <laughs> and Nachiketa said, that's all right. You know, I've learned something sitting here. And because I've kept you waiting for three days and nights, uh, as an apology, I will offer you three boons, which is to say three wishes. That's the way it's told in these stories. Um, having not been a proper host to you, you, now I can offer you three wishes, and you may wish for what you like. We'll have a conversation, and I'll see what kind of a young man you really are. So Nachiketa sat quietly for a moment on his initiation journey, and he thought, and he felt, because the word in Sanskrit for mind, chitta, is the same word for heart. It's really heart-mind. We've divided them in this culture, but they're one in the indigenous world and in the world of wisdom. He said, my first wish is for forgiveness. I would that my father could see me as he did on the day that I was born. Because there he was with this huge struggle, the, the father wound, the conflict that we have 
in trying to become ourselves or with the hypocrisy of the society or our parents. And some deep longing in him said, I, I wish for forgiveness for this journey. That's the first wish that I had, that my father could see me with the love he saw me when I was first born. And I know that when I first started to practice in meditation as a kind of ardent young guy going to the toughest monastery I could find and things, and then coming back and teaching with that kind of effort and energy, it didn't work very well for most people. It was okay for, you know, a while for young men, women trying to test themselves. But what happened here is that as people made great effort, mostly it, it mapped directly onto their ambition and unworthiness that's so rampant in our and culture. And people would say, I'm not doing it well enough, and I'm not a good meditator, and actually I'm not a very good person. And all the unworthiness, and all the self-judgment, and all the striving would come up. And the reason, no, it's not this, that we actually have to start with compassion for who we are as human beings, for what we've suffered, what we live in, um, what those around us have suffered. And with that mercy, with that compassion, with that forgiveness, then it becomes possible to see what's true. Because otherwise you're just judging and fighting against it in yourself. So Najiketa asked for forgiveness. Do not introduce me to him, said the writer Charles Lamb. I want to go on hating him, and it's hard to continue hating a person you get to know. (laughs) Forgiveness. What does it mean? for us. It's so critical in our journey. The South South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, after all that happened there, and Bishop Tutu writes about this, he said, we want to forgive. I remember in, in one of our councils, people came forth giving testimony. I heard that testimony of the daughter of one of the four men from Craddock who in 1985 were abducted and murdered and burned. The girl was only 16 years old, and she said, I want to forgive, but I do not know to whom I can forgive. If only I could know who did what to my father, then I would really be able to forgive. So there's something in us that wants to move on, because otherwise it's the Northern Irish and Catholic Protestants, you know, fighting over what happened 300 years ago. Your people did this to my people, you know, or the... Hutus and Tutsis or the Israelis and the Palestinians, and your, your people did this to mine, and it never stops. And finally, with the forgiveness, it stops with us. I will not pass this suffering on to another generation, to another person. And so when we undertake a genuine journey like Nachiketa, forgiveness is part of the ground of what is necessary. I have an amazing book of photographs that's kind of a holy book for me, uh, taken at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, um, which is a place that people go over the years to touch the names of their father or their grandfather or their son, you know, 58,000 names, to leave offerings. And this is a book of the offerings that are left. And one of the pictures in the offerings is a note and a photograph. Dear Sir, for 22 years, I've carried your picture in my wallet. It's a little green picture. I was only 18 years the day we faced one another on that trail in Chu Lai, Vietnam. Why you didn't take my life, I never knew. You stared at me so long, armed with your AK-47, yet you did not fire. 
Forgive me for taking your life. I was just reacting the way I was trained. But so many times over the years, I've stared at your picture and your daughter, who was a man and his child. And each time my heart and guts burn with the pain of guilt, for I have two daughters myself now. And I know you were a brave soldier defending your homeland. Above all else, I can now respect the importance that life held for you. I suppose that is why I'm here today. And yet, it is time for me to continue the life process and release my pain and guilt. Forgive me, sir. I offer this to you. Please forgive me. And this man, Richard Luttrell, who faced the enormity of what it is to take a life, and that's all these soldiers coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. It's not, I can't tell you what I saw. It's, I can't tell you what I did. That really burns into the soul. Eventually, what he did is he flew to Hanoi with the picture. And he showed it to people, and they could tell what battalion, and they found which place this man had come from, and he made his way back to the village, and he found the daughter in the picture, and her brother, and gave it to her and said with the interpreter, tell her this is the photo I took from your father's wallet the day that I shot and killed him, and I've carried it for all these years, and I need to return it to you and ask your forgiveness. And they all sobbed, and the children said that they felt that their father's spirit had come back to them through Richard on that day. But we all have something to ask forgiveness for, to forgive ourselves, to forgive another in some way or other. Overcome all bitterness because you are not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you, say the Sufis, like the mother of the world who carries the pain of the world in her heart. We are all carrying the pain of this life and sharing in it together. You are called upon to meet it in compassion, forgiveness, instead of self-pity, to carry it with dignity. So this was the first blessing that Nachiketa asked for. I think of the Zen poet Ryokan who wrote, Oh, that my poets, my priest's robes, were wide enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world and bless them. And there's something about forgiveness. It doesn't mean you have to go back and see those people. You may say, never again, I will do what I can to prevent harm continuing. But it's really in your own heart to no longer carry hatred, to release yourself, to forgive yourself, to forgive another. And so this was the first step of Nachiketa's journey. And then Lord Yama looked back and said, that was a wise request, Nachiketa. You will free yourself through this act of forgiveness. Now what is your second wish? Nachiketa reflected for a time. And he said, what I want is aliveness. I want to live every day, every moment. I want to live this life as fully awake as I can. It's like Don Juan's question to Carlos Castaneda, does the path you're living have a heart? If it does, it is wonderful. If it doesn't, it is of no use. 
put it this way. Go ahead, light your candles, burn your incense, ring your bells, and call out to the gods, but watch out, because the gods will come, and they will put you on their anvil and fire up the forge and beat you and beat you until they turn brass into pure gold. And this is what he asked for. He said, I want the real deal. You know, I want whatever it takes to awaken, to liberate, to love, whatever it is possible. I want the energy and aliveness to do this in my life and not to be afraid. I think of a friend of mine whose daughter had meningitis when she was 17 or 18 and was, it looked like, very severely brain damaged from it. And her mother wouldn't accept it. They said she may not be able to speak again, she may not be able to move in the way a normal person can. Her mother moved into the rehab hospital and spent a year lifting her arm and moving it and putting it down, lifting her arm again, mouthing a word. You know, she, her daughter is now, it's 20 years later, she graduated law school, you know. Um, she just said, I will do this. And this is what Nachiketa asked for. And we all have it in us. Ask that capacity to, to give ourselves fully to something. I think about Aung San Suu Kyi, who just won the election in Burma after 17 years of patience and dedication. They said she could leave Burma anytime she wanted, but she would not be allowed in. And she said, I will not go and I will not hate you, but I will not go for 17 years. James Baldwin, who writes, he says, I imagine that one of the reasons people cling to their hate and prejudice so stubbornly is they sense that once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with their own pain. And so we project it on others, on the immigrants or the communists or the Muslims or whoever it happens to be, you know, because we can't bear our own insecurity, our own unknowing. And here's Aung San Suu Kyi and she said, I will not go no matter what, and I will not hate you. And it was the fire of dedication to what really mattered to her, giving her life to that. And this is what Nachiketa asks. And in some way, we all can ask this. What matters to us, and how can we give ourselves to it? If you do meditations, and Master Suzuki Roshi said, it's like becoming a baker. You put yourself in the oven every morning, and you bake hundreds and hundreds of loaves of bread, and after a while you get better at it, and the bread starts to smell good, and the kitchen feels good after you've sat, you know, and you just put yourself in the oven over and over and over again. Tamara Engel, dying of cancer, writes, My days are short, and as I grow weaker, I experience so much gratitude for my meditation. Not only the joy and ease it brought, but the hard parts. For every bored and restless sitting, every fearful fantasy, and every pain and ache I sat through, and every itch I didn't scratch, was a training for kindness, a training for the muscle for bearing witness, for the trusting spirit that carries me now, even as I face my death. 
And so as we dedicate ourselves, whether it's the meditation practice or the things that you love and that make your spirit and heart grow, that dedication brings you back to who you really are, to wisdom, to a kind of liberation. And this is what Nachiketa asked more than anything that he might find. Now, of course, we get a little bit reluctant. I mean, should I really do this? This is from Laurie Anderson. In the Tibetan map of the world, the world is a circle, and at the center there's an enormous mountain guarded by four gates. And when they draw a map of the world, they draw the map in sand, and it takes months, and then when the map is finished, they say some prayers, erase it, and throw the sand in the nearest river. Last fall, the Dalai Lama came to New York to do a two-week ceremony called the Kala Chakra, which is a prayer to heal the earth. And woven into these prayers were a series of vows that he asked us to take, and before I knew it, I had taken a vow to be kind for the rest of my life. (laughs) And I walked out of there and I thought, for the rest of my life, what have I done? This is a disaster. And I was really worried. Had I promised too much? Not enough. I was really in a panic. They had come from Tibet for the ceremony and they were walking around Midtown in their new brown shoes. And I went up to one of the monks and said, can you come with me to have a cappuccino right now and talk? So we went to this little Italian place. He had never had coffee before, so he kept talking faster and faster. (laughs) And I kept saying, look, I don't know whether I promised too much or too little. Can you help me, please? And he was being really radical. He said, look, don't limit yourself. Don't be so strict. Open it up. He said, the mind is a wild white horse. And when you make a corral for it, make sure it's not so small. And another thing, when your house burns down, just walk away. And another thing, keep your eyes open. Find the right road. One more thing, get moving, because it's finally time to go home. So Nachiketa asked for this aliveness, and the story, the story is really a mirror. You know, where are you in the story? Needing forgiveness, looking at what brings your life alive. He asked, can I live a life? Can I tend the fire of my life and my heart so that something beautiful grows from it? And so he was given this blessing by Lord Yama, yes. And now finally, Lord Yama looked at him and said, now you have the opportunity to ask for your third boon, your third blessing. And Nachiketa sat quietly for a moment, reflected. And he said, I ask for that which is immortal. It's quite a thing to ask from death. And Lord Yama looked back and says, are you sure? This is your last wish, you know, and here you could have this, and he showed him the palaces and the maidens and the sense pleasures and the Ferrari, although it was probably a chariot with six or eight steed, you know. Um, And we can make you a royal prince, and you can have children and grandchildren and a great kingdom. And he shows him all the things that he could get. This is your last wish, remember. And Nachiketa looks back at him and says, I have a question for you. Because we all have our temptations. You know what Lord Yama parades before you, don't you? Food or thoughts or hopes or ideas, maybe even the idea of enlightenment. Oh, yes. 
or enlightened retirement, even better. (laughs) You know all your dreams. He said, okay, look at all this, yeah. And then Nachiketa looked back at the Lord of Death and said, I have one question for you. Will not all of these things soon enough return to your domain? And Lord Yama nodded and said, yes, it's true. That all these things are temporal, they're temporary, whatever it is you get. And he said, well, in that case, I stick with my wish. I want to know that which is immortal. So Lord Yama sat there as a wise benefactor, the third wish of this young man. And he said, I cannot tell you so that you will know, but I will help you to answer this. And he went back and he presented Nachiketa with a beautiful engraved mirror. And he said, you must look deeply into this mirror and ask one question. Who am I? Who am I really? And this will lead you to your third boon. And I remember we have, along with the center here at Spirit Rock, and now there's a lot of different mindfulness centers around the country, but we started this center in Massachusetts, Insight Meditation Society. And we've had 35 three-month, retreat, three-month retreats there. We started in the mid-70s holding a three-month silent retreat. We have two-month silent retreats here in the winter every year. And um, in about the eighth year or something, we had a visit from Zen Master Kusan from Nine Mountains Monastery in Korea. And Kusan was a very kind of formidable-looking and stern and um, intense Zen Master, kind of right out of the old Zen Master books you might have read. And he came to give a talk at the end of the retreat. And he sat up in the front of the, on the little platform in front of these people who'd been in silence for a hundred days, three months, and asked them about their practice. And they said they were being mindful of their breath and of their body and thoughts and feelings and becoming the space of awareness. And he listened and he said, no good. (laughs) Imagine after a hundred days of doing it, no good. Said, not good practice, no good. And so he got their attention, right? I said, well, then what? What's good? And he took his Zen master's staff and he pounded it on the floor and he said, only what is this? Who am I? Who am I? Only who am I? Who am I? Over and over again. That, he said, that's a good retreat. But it is the great question. Yeah, you can turn that off, Sean. Thank you. That's good. Appreciate it. It is the great question. Are you your body? I was just with Ramdas in Hawaii in February, and there he was with his stroke and aphasia, unable to move one arm and not, not very well one leg and in his wheelchair. Um, and he was looking out and he said, you're not your body. You think you're this food body, you know? All those artichokes and cheeses and (laughs) rice and crackers and burgers you ate. I mean, that's not who you are, you know? Do you think you're your thoughts? I hope not. And that would be a real disaster, you know? 
Well, you're your emotions, you think you're your feelings, but you feel this way one moment and feel this way another. Who are you? You know, and there was a guy, a disabled guy, who was sitting right in the front, who shouted out, Ramda says, we're not our bodies, yay! You know, <laughs> it was really beautiful. We are not our bodies. So if you're not your body, this is the vessel for spirit. If you're not your feelings, if you're not your thoughts, if you're not your story, remember that one? Hmm? Who are you, you know? So Wavy Gravy, who is a good friend, recently had his 75th birthday and done all these amazing things in his life. One of the great things that Wavy does, or did for a long time as a clown, was to go and work in children's hospitals. And you go in the children's wards and blow bubbles and tell jokes and do, play magic tricks and do all the things that clowns do to try and amuse them. And he writes a story about I think I can mostly tell it. I don't have to read it. But he writes a story about going into this one hospital and then going into the burn unit, he said, which was really terrible, and trying to amuse these kids and make them laugh and do these things. And he said, and then I went to this one special room that was kind of dark. There wasn't a lot of light. And there was one little kid, black there. He said, there was this one little black kid who was horribly burned. He looked like burnt toast. Pieces of his face weren't there and ears were missing. Where was his mouth? You could hardly tell who he was. He said, and it just was mind-boggling. It was terrifying. It was like those pictures you saw during the Vietnam War of what happened in Napalm. And, and, but here it was in front of me, and I started to think, what will it be like if he lives? What if it was my child? What if it was me? So he says, there we were, burnt toast, an unglued clown, right? <laughs> And all of a sudden, this other kid comes whizzing by, skating along with his IV pole. And he stops, pushes around me, looks in the crib at this other kid and says, Hey, you ugly. And just like that, the burnt kid makes this gurgling laugh kind of sound. And his face moved. And I looked into his eyes. And we locked up right there and just dissolved. And it was like a tunnel to his heart, all that burnt flesh. He knows he's ugly more than anybody else. He's got to deal, if he's got to deal with people hanging around with saliva coming out of their mouth, it's going to be a lot more horrible than that. But what if somebody just meets him in the eye and says, wow, what's happening, man? That's really intense. How are you in there? And he said, all of a sudden, I fell in love. I fell in love with this child. He was my child. Who are we? Who are you behind this body and feelings and thoughts and all of that? My teacher Ajahn Chah, who lived in the forests of the Mekong River Valley and practiced as an ascetic wandering monk for a long time, um, lived in caves and so forth. He did all these wild yogic practices, some of which I started to talk about last week in very modest ways, um, but, and had visions and lights and dissolving and all kinds of, you know, samadhi states and things. And then he went to see the greatest meditation master of, of that era. Um, and he kind of presented himself to him, the teacher, and bowed and sat quietly. And at some point the teacher said, so tell me why you've come. And he said, I've learned to meditate and I've had these experiences and these insights and light and visions and samadhi and all these different amazing things have happened. 
and I'm seeking your guidance. And the teacher looked at him and said, you've missed the point. He said, those experiences all happen on the screen of the mind, the screen of consciousness. He said, and they're no different than going to the movie theater and seeing a romantic comedy or a war movie, you know, or a documentary um, or a science fiction or, you know, all the kinds of movies you go to see. He said, the point is not that the movies are always changing and so are your experiences. What matters is to whom do they happen. So turn your attention from the experiences themselves back to awareness and ask, who am I? And become the knowing itself, become the awareness, the loving awareness, become the one who knows. Because this is your Buddha nature, this is your true nature. And you'll see when you die, you'll feel, feel figured out then probably, you know, you'll float out of your body and you'll say, wow, that was a trip, ma, you know, that whole personality and family thing, yeah, man. You don't think so, huh? You wait, you'll see. And remember, I told you so. Yeah, yeah. So my teacher, Nisargadat in India, he said, you know yourself only through the senses and you take yourself to be what they suggest, the senses of your body and the things around you. To myself, I am neither perceivable nor describable. There's nothing I can point to and say, this I am. You identify with everything so easily, your story, your body, your thoughts, your, you know, your family, your community, this is, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this. For me, this is impossible. For wisdom sees that I am nothing, and love sees that I am everything. And between these two, my life flows. So what happens as you get quiet? If you take this mirror, this great question that Lord Yama gave to Nachiketa, and ask, who am I really? You get caught up in all the things of the mind and personality, struggles of community and life and work and so forth. Who am I really? You are awareness. You are loving awareness. And those things happen to you. They are the spirit that is born into you, has all these sense experiences and all these things. It's not who you really are. Look and see, don't, you know, this is not something to believe. This is the inquiry that Zen Master Kusan said, who, is, who am I? What am I? What is this? And what happens over time is that you discover that you become the witness to experience. And to witness doesn't mean that you don't feel it fully. It just means that it's not all of who you are. You become the space of awareness. One great Tibetan Lama, Shabkar, he says, come, come up close and listen. When you look carefully to find the mind, you won't find the merest speck of real mind that you can put your finger on and say, this is it. And not finding anything is an incredible find, my friends. For in its true nature, mind doesn't emerge from anything. It is primordially empty. There's nothing there to hold on to. It isn't anywhere. It has no shape or color. 
It is the field of consciousness itself, the knowing. It is not limited by anything. There's nowhere to go and nowhere to come. It is awareness. And this is what you are. It neither comes nor goes. It is clear like a flawless piece of crystal. Your own mind itself, surely and always, the Buddha, the one who knows. So, sometimes you inquire, especially when you're caught in things, or something terrible happens, or you go through a blow or an initiation, or you get your diagnosis or something's going on, and you get so caught, and then there's that moment where you remember and you say, wow, I was really caught in that, wasn't I? And that's the moment of awareness that knows this is not who you really are. And you become fearless. Fearless doesn't mean you don't have fear, by the way. It doesn't mean that. It just means that you say, oh, this is fear. I know you. I know you. That's just one of the other movies on the screen. Sometimes you, you sense it. Sometimes you rest in the awareness and your life comes and goes. You notice it when you wake up there, you had to sleep. You love to go to sleep, don't you? Come on, face, face it. You like to be unconscious. It's amazing. Yes, you love your life, but then enough already. Can't I have a sleep and not have to deal with anything? Because your life is only part of who you are. It is. Sometimes someone will look at you like Wavy Gravy did, looking at that young boy. In India, you see a teacher, and Ramana Maharshi was famous for this, and they look at you with what's called the glance of mercy. They look in your eyes, and they see you confused and seeking and lost and imagining and doing your life. And it's like, don't you remember who you are? They see the beauty that's in you that you've lost track of, that's, that, that can't be touched. It remember, reminds me of the story of Jarvis Masters that I like to tell, who's in San Quentin on death row. Longtime Buddhist practitioner, an amazing man. And uh, Jarvis took bodhisattva vows from Thrangu Rinpoche and has been practicing as a bodhisattva. Anyway, one day, in the winter, after a big rain, he was out in the San Quentin yard, which is a wild place because there's the razor wire and the guards with their guns and the, you know, the chain link fence. And then on the other side of it is sailboats and Mount Tam and the bridge. It's like the most amazing piece of real estate in the world, you know, but you're in there with the guards and their guns and it's, it's wild. And there were puddles in the yard and a seagull came and landed in the puddle. And the young man who was sitting next to Jarvis picked up a rock to throw it at the seagull. And if you don't understand that, you haven't been hanging out with young men lately. But it's like hunting or something. Anyway, okay. And Jarvis, because he took this vow of non-harming without even thinking, kind of stuck out his arm like, don't do that, man. But didn't say anything, just did that. And the guy got really angry. You know, they work out and tattooed muscles, young. I mean, you've got to be tough in there to survive. What you doing? Why'd you do that? You know, shouting and everything in the yard gets silent. Okay, something's going to come down because you don't mess with somebody's personal space. And Jarvis turned and looked at him and he said, 
that bird got my wings. And the guy looked at him and kind of lowered the, what do you mean that bird got your wings? What are you talking about? If you're really in trouble, say something insane like that. But he put the rock down and Jarvis got up and walked away. And for two weeks afterward, people went up to Jarvis in the cell block and places, said, Jarvis, what do you mean that bird got my wings? What do you mean when you said that? And Jarvis never answered. It's like a koan, right? But everybody knew. Actually, everybody there knew. They knew that you could, they can put your body in prison, but they can't imprison your spirit. Nelson Mandela, 27 years in Robben Island prison, walk out with such magnanimity and graciousness and dignity and forgiveness. Aung San Suu Kyi, your spirit, no one can take your spirit from you. Who are you really? So you look inside and you remember that you are the awakened one. You are the Buddha. And Nachiketa sat there, awakened. And then... It was time for Nachiketa to return. How does that happen? What makes you return when you've gone through your journey? And because Nachiketa took the mirror and looked deeply, in that profound silence, he saw that, as Nisargadot said, He was everything and nothing. And this isn't some philosophy or something you have to believe. It is the truth. Kalu Rinpoche, great Tibetan Lama, said, you live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality, but you do not remember it. When you understand, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. And we all know it. We experience it walking in the mountains or making love or listening to an amazing piece of music or being there at the birth of a child or the death of someone we love and that mystery when the body turns into a corpse and the spirit leaves and you know it's not. That body, that meat sitting there is not who that person was. Who are you in this mystery? And Nachiketa saw, I am nothing and everything. I am interwoven into all of life. Zen masters last, they write their little poems, and then they sit up and die, at least that's how it's said. Two little death poems. Empty-handed I entered the world, barefoot I leave it. My coming and going, two simple happenings that got entangled. Goodbye, you know. Or Taiyu, another Zen master. Though I should live to be a hundred, the same world, the same cherry blossoms. And what happened, what Nachiketa saw so beautifully is what Black Elk saw, the great Sioux medicine man, when he went up to Harney Peak and had this amazing vision. Black Elk was one of the great Native American medicine men. He said, I stood on that peak and I saw more than I could know and more than I could tell. And I saw the whole world as a sacred hoop, as a sacred circle. And every being was part of that circle. And in the beginning, in the middle of the circle, was the tree of life that gave life to all things. And I was a part of that tree and I was that tree. 
And we are all part of that tree. We are that tree, giving life, giving life to itself. And then he said, I saw that everything and every place was holy and that every place was the center of the circle. That where you are is holy ground, where you sit and where you live in the body that you're given and the experiences you have is the holy ground that your spirit awakens in. And when Nachiketa saw this, he realized that he didn't have to return anywhere that not one step takes you away. As Rumi writes, he says, no, it's Kabir, great Indian mystic. He says, are you looking for me? I am in the next seat. My shoulder is against yours. And so Nachiketa saw that the sacredness of life that was everywhere was exactly where he sat. And when he opened his eyes again, the world bloomed, the grasses of the spring returned, the trees blossomed, and he realized there he was in the springtime in India in that forest, three days and nights of sitting in the journey to the underworld. And he walked himself back to his father to see him and bow to him and ask his forgiveness. And in the end, it's so simple. You are part of this web of life. You are part of this mystery and you forget it. Think you're not connected with it all. And you, when you look, when you stop and look in the mirror and listen with your heart, you come to a place that is so still and alive and connected and trustworthy and beautiful. Poet Pablo Neruda writes, you can pick all the flowers but you can't stop the spring. And there's something in you that is so alive and it's been there from before you were born, oh nobly born, remember who you are. And when you remember, you touch everyone around you. you. You bestow blessings. Gandhi says, I believe in the essential unity of all life and therefore I believe that if one person gains spiritually, the whole world gains. And that if one person falls, the whole world falls to that extent. And so you who've taken the journey with Nachiketa tonight, maybe some peace resonates, the forgiveness that you have to give yourself so deeply or offer another to release them. The aliveness that you have to dedicate yourself to. The hypocrisy of the world that you have to see clearly and be willing to say, this is true, and name it, and not enter into it. The mystery of remembering your own secret beauty, not your body, your thoughts, your feelings, who are you really? All of these stories. As Mary Oliver said, I never asked for understanding, I asked for wonder. And so you become blessed in whatever form your initiation takes you. It's a journey back to the mystery and the present and to a freer and more spacious and beautiful heart. Somebody said, what does initiation prepare you for? And my friend Maladomo Somme, this West African medicine man shaman, he said, why? It prepares you for the next initiation. (laughs) 
that's how it works, isn't it, huh? Uh, so we're blessed. We're blessed by the spring. We're blessed by the company of other beings. We're blessed by the fact that we can awaken. Let's sit for a moment. Rest in loving awareness, your own true nature. I am loving awareness. All the other things come and go like waves of the ocean or images on the screen. I am loving awareness. Trust it. Rest in it. It is your own true nature. Is home. So before we leave, I'd like us to do a simple one-syllable chant. Then you can go out into the spring evening. Um, In the Buddhist tradition, there's a great text called the Sutras of Complete Wisdom in 80,000 verses. And then there's a smaller 8,000 verse version and an 800 and an 80. And fortunately, it's summed up in this one syllable, (laughs) which saves a lot of study on your part. And the reason the syllable is the sound of wisdom is in Sanskrit, it's considered the first sound of life and the last sound. But most importantly, it's a seed syllable, ah, it's a sound of letting go or opening, opening to the mystery of life, to the flow of life through you. And so I'd like us to sing ah, and as you do, you can feel what wants to open as you leave tonight so that you can return to the world Um, with a beginner's mind and an open heart and offer your blessings from your own Buddha's heart. Ah, add harmony, ah, ah.
keep it going Carry whatever has touched you is true in your heart. (laughs) Carry your blessings. And it's crowded out there in the parking lot, so drive politely. Thank you. (laughs) And thanks for your generous support in all kinds of ways. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.